Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition. It's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. All right, we are back with the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the show bringing you everything tech in Shanghai from the great city, or tech and startup from the great city of Shanghai. Today's guests are Simon Kwan and Ed Dean, the co-founders of Logical Designs. We invited them in the studio today to talk about a number of things regarding their company. They've had some experience with uh, Kickstarter and successfully uh, kickstarted a, a product. So, guys, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Before we get going, I know we just uh, we were we were a little too eager before the show started, and we were getting into some things about the company. Why don't one of you give me a basic rundown, Simon? You were kind of mid mid uh, sentence when we started this thing off. Tell us about the company, what you guys do, who you do it for, and a bit of the history. Okay, so the company is Logical Designs,、um, and we started out as a, a company with the vision to develop. Products that basically solve problems for niche markets,、uh, like user scenarios and pain points in consumer electronics and accessories that a lot of the major players、uh, and the existing brands weren't addressing、uh, for one reason or another. We can only, you know, guess that would be conjecture. But all I know is that there were times, and I think all of us as consumers have experienced a time when we had a problem to solve. That you know, or、uh, we were using a product or needed a product that did something for us,、mm-hmm. and we went out on the market. We went to Amazon, we went to the stores, whatever, and we couldn't find something for us that solved that problem.、Um, and so, a lot of times, as a consumer, you give up. You go, oh well, you know, or I'll, I'll settle, I'll compromise, I'll buy something, or I'll hack something to make it work. But as a as an industrial designer、uh, and an engineer, I decided, you know what, I can't settle for that. Uh, I should come up with a solution,、um, and so that's kind of how it started. Is I started sketching up and concepting this this case that would hold SIM cards and the nano、uh, the、uh, SIM eject tool while、right. I traveled because、uh, traveling with an iPhone, being an iPhoneer, traveling around, paying crazy roaming rates, right? Sure. So anytime I go to another country, I buy a local SIM card, right? But then. You know, to get the SIM card out of the iPhone, you need a pin, a special ejection tool, or you're left using your girlfriend's earrings or looking for some needle or something. Right.、Uh, and even if you manage to get the SIM card out, there's always a risk of losing a SIM card, which really would suck because then you go back home and you can't use your phone with your home SIM. So I looked for it, couldn't find it. Decided, decided it was, to make it. Yeah, decided to make it.、Uh, and Ed approached me.、Um, Ed and I had known each other for a while,、uh, several years in Shanghai. We used to work in a、uh, sort of an open office environment together at different companies. Ed owns、uh, and started up a, a different company in a completely different arena.、Um, and but we we kept bumping into each other at a couple of events. I think there was a trend spotting、yeah. event. That we bumped into each other. Trend watching, right, right, and、uh, and Ed called me up、uh, a、I、short time、idea. after. Yeah, Ed、I、had, had an, an idea. idea for some crazy ass、um, 
hardware project, and uh-huh. he was the only industrial designer I knew. So I uh, arranged to meet up for coffee and showed him my idea, which yeah, we, we might do one what, day. What, what was the idea? Wow. Can't disclose? No. Oh, jeez. Can't, can't sacred sacred ground. Let's not go wow. there. That's right. It's, it's actually not a great idea. It's an okay idea, not a great one. But he showed me the uh, renders he'd been doing on his simple case, mm-hmm. and um, I thought that was pretty interesting. And I was at a stage where my existing business, um, which is a consulting company totally unrelated to um, this, mm-hmm. uh, I was looking for a change, and you know, there, there was less for me to do on a day-by-day basis with the other business. Um, and so I uh, wanted to get involved, and I was particularly interested by the fact that Simon had had a previously failed Kickstarter campaign about six months before we did ours, or nine months. He'd had one that had... Yeah, had not worked out so right. there's obviously a lot of experience there and, and when it came down to it we were able to make our one successful last year in March and you from the get go thought that you know if you could put something together and have a successful Kickstarter campaign then that would give you the PR and the traction to actually make a run of it was that what you were thinking was it, it was it was less you know We've learned a lot since, you sure. know, obviously learned a lot from the failure and then we've learned a lot from the success. Yeah. And along the way, you know, when we started out, honestly, it was more of a really old school mentality with crowdfunding thinking, okay, well, we have a thing. We want to produce it. It's going to cost X amount. Let's get that money. We, yeah, let's get that money. Yeah. Um, at the time, and this is, this is going to sound amazing for most people, but, uh, you know, we are kind of old school and we're slow to get in the game. At the time we started it, we had no early forties. <laughs> we had no, no we, way. We had no, we had no Twitter account. <laughs> we were complete social media. Not, you know, like I was on Facebook. Oh yeah. We had, hey, there you go. Yeah. We had Facebook and LinkedIn, but we, you know, we knew nothing yeah. really about engaging the point is social for a business, media. From a business perspective, we, we were, we're off the grid. We right. had nothing to start with. And, and you weren't familiar with how to use those avenues to generate, PR, traction, word of mouth yeah. for the whatever you are getting engaged in, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. A, a bit naive about the whole if you build it, they will come kind of right. thing. I mean, we knew we had a product. We knew from talking to other people who had shared the same kind of pain that we did that we knew there was an existing consumer base for this thing. We just we didn't realize uh, how much work it would be to go out and right. reach them. Now, are you still referring to the, the first try or, the, or you guys together? Oh, the, the, us together. Okay. Yeah. All right. and, and, and that one of the things that made me interested in working on it was as soon as I saw the idea for the case, I knew it was a newsworthy story uh-huh. and I figured that that was worth going with. And that was proved right because in the end, we, we got picked up by TechCrunch and Mashable all within the first week. Wow. Um, of being fun, in, on of, the camp, of, of Kickstarter, Kickstarter campaign? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose there's, there's three main benefits for a Kickstarter, which is the most popular one uh, or for a crowdfunding campaign. And uh, one is you get to test the market. Two right. is you get the seed funding up front if you're successful. And three is you get the marketing because by dint of being on there and having a newsworthy product, people pick it up. Mm-hmm. But we'd actually had uh, a piece of luck about three days before we were going to launch our one. Some guy in England kickstarted a Death Star. Yeah, I joke know. campaign. So joke campaign. I don't know if you know the history, but uh, the Obama administration opened up uh, petitions to the American public to say, you know, if you have something that you want the federal government to seriously address, you can start a petition. You get a hundred thousand signatures or whatever, and we, you know, the government has to look into it. Right. Right. They can't just ignore it. Any sort of project, infrastructure, anything, anything, whatever. Right. Yeah. Death Star. 
Right. So a bunch of Star Wars fans got together and basically petitioned the government to look into – I think so. I they think it was done, it yeah. was a huge amount. And That's they got, awesome. They, well, you know, I mean one person gets – writes a petition and a couple of people start pushing the cause. Sure. And with social media the way it is now, you know, you just get everybody's signature on it. I mean it's actually probably not that hard to get 100,000 right. Star Wars and that's, fans. That's just the kind of thing that people like to do on social media. <laughs> like anything sure, that's sure. actually legitimate and could help. It's like, man, yeah. not really interested. But oh, Death Star to yeah. the government? Yeah. Yeah, we'll back that. it. So the, the whole premise was the you know, the, the, the fans were asking the feds whether or not uh, you know, to basically do a study to figure out how much money it would cost to actually build a Death Star to defend the Earth against intergalactic threats. <laughs> right. And the government um, – I, I, I don't remember the name, but the guy who was in charge of the response team, I think he was like part of the NASA or something or, or the defense program, space program. He actually wrote back a really great reply. He actually took it pretty seriously and wrote back a really humorous and intelligent reply. But it was a decline. It was a no, right? Right. So the guy in England – Use Kickstarter to basically, you know, riff off of this and say, okay, well, if the government won't do it, why don't we crowdfund our own, you know? Death Star. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's raise enough money. What was it like? The, you know, a whatever. couple of million dollars to buy enough chicken wire and whatever to, to, to wireframe one to wireframe <laughs> a Death Star. So, so we're sitting there. About we we love the joke. Launching. It was hilarious. Totally. So we're Who wouldn't? Three days before launching. And uh, Simon shows me this, and I'm like, well, we should uh, – I think, no, you said let's do an X-Wing one. Let's yeah. do an X-Wing squadron. And I was like, yep, do it. Do it. So and we did. we wrote it up right there. We, said, we wrote it uh, – yeah, we wrote it up. We were at, what, uh, Brioche Story Cafe on, on Yenping Lu, and we, uh, we wrote up the uh, – already drafted it um, and clipped a couple of images, right, and just submitted it to Kickstarter. And lo and behold, the next day, like less than 24 hours turnaround time, they approved it. And so we launched it. And, so uh, was crowdfunding an X-wing squadron. Right. That's amazing. That's part. amazing. But let's just one let's pause for a second. For those people, including myself, who aren't totally familiar with Kickstarter, can you just? I mean, do you just have to tick a number of different boxes and you can kickstart whatever you like? I mean, it doesn't have to have no, any no. bearing Kick- on whether or not it's Kickstarter for legitimate projects. Kickstarter has a very uh, detailed bunch of guidelines and rules, exceptions, projects that they will and will not fund. Yeah. You know, things like that. But this was a joke and it was obviously a joke and because up until recently, actually very recently, Kickstarter had human eyes critiquing and looking over every project submission, you know, it reached the right eyes. They already had approved one joke and it was just very cool of them to let us do a rebuttal, you know, because somebody was funding the Death Star. The Death Star is evil. We can't stand for that. So, you know, (laughs) we're on the side of the rebellion. Right. It was very cool they let us do this yeah. and we had a PR we had a lot of fun because it all got picked up. Yeah. yeah. And then um I think the, the that BBC show Click it was on AOL. It was on a bunch of stuff. It got got out there. Look, there's a death. It would something and like look, that. Yeah. The next wing. Yeah. And you guys just came up with this at a cafe down exactly. on Young Kong or something. Yeah. To the yeah. Death Star one. <laughs> but this was all 3 days before our planned Kickstarter launch for our real product. Mm-hmm. So of course when we did launch that three, four days later, we were able to tweet people saying, we're the guys behind the X-Wing squadron, but here's a real yeah. product. And that's and actually then, how we got connected that, with got um, up in TechCrunch. Yancey, right? Yancey Strickler. And no, no. What was it? With uh, Daryl. Oh, Daryl. Daryl, right, right, right. The right mm-hmm. And are, are you guys saying that that was an intentional strategy? Like, let's get no, some funny no, some no, press? No, no, We were having fun, but yeah. when, the, when, the, when, you when saw it the turned impact. viral, yeah. how would, you know, you would be an idiot not to 
at least use that as a bridge to make an introduction. Yeah. Right. And we were prepared for them to say, oh, okay, well, we, you know, okay, whatever. We we thought the Death Star thing was funny, but we don't care about your real thing. We were prepared for that reaction. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, but actually, I say, I it people were really idea. nice about it. I always thought it was a news idea. News yeah, idea I mean, it's, anyway. it's fantastic. I mean, people listening might even take notes. And if they're going to launch a real <laughs> product in the case. future, they'll be like, oh, what can I do for a little viral uh, PR before we do this? Yeah. Um, before we get into the the Kickstarter story with you guys mm-hmm. that you're that you're on now with the product that you have now, you mentioned that you'd done one prior. Yeah, can we talk about that a bit and maybe? Yeah, really, really simple. Yeah. Uh, it was it, it was a product that it was an accessory for an iPod. You know, iPod watches were all the rage, and I bought a couple of iPod watches, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. But uh, the pocket watch was also an interesting form factor, and there hadn't been uh, a, a pocket watch version, and so just. Just being kind of naive and, and not really thinking about it from a business case, I decided to design something that was more like a piece of jewelry for that would be more appealing to women because a lot of these iPod wristwatches were just big, hunky, masculine, industrial design things. things. Yeah. yeah, they're all for guys, so yeah. you know, not really f- for women. But a pocket watch, you know, with a closed cover, you could ornament the cover. You could do a lot more things that were more jewel jewelry like. Sure. You know, wear it on a nice necklace and all that stuff. So. Designed it, got it prototyped. Uh, without going into the details, I made a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> um, I First of all, if you're going to design an accessory for a product, make sure you're designing the accessory for the product uh, near its early uh, or peak of its life. I was designing a pro- an accessory for a product that was on its way out of its life cycle. Right. So interest was pretty much dead. Mm-hmm. You know, Consumer demand was very low. Um, it's like surfing a wave, you know, you, you, you hit it from the front. You don't try to, you know, get it when it's past you. Sure. Um, and then also, uh, the product itself was very expensive. I had never created a project, uh, before. Um, it was complex. It was expensive. Uh, I had way too many options for rewards. I confused the uh, the backers. Yeah, you know this was just. This and how, was how much were you going, going for? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the worst part. I, I needed mistake. something like forty five thousand dollars. You know, was, these were these were CNC out of aluminum, or they were going to be have to be die cast, or you know. So, <laughs> and your approach at that time was. Like a like and again, a less informed no, approach to Kickstarter, right? Oh, yeah. So I just I need this money so I can get I these just, products made. Yeah, just put it out there, right? Right. right. But, but also one of the thing that people often get wrong, one of the things people get wrong is that they think that if you put your beautiful project page up there, well written, um, then the community that's on Kickstarter already we'll just rally around it. it. Yeah. But it, it's rare. You do need to create your own audience. You need to create your own news, and that wasn't something you you knew the first. Oh time. yeah, I, I, knew, I knew nothing. The second time around, we, we, we found that out. Right, well, because we of course, you know, when I failed, I, uh, you know, being being the kind of person that I am, I had to examine the failure. Right, yeah, I had to learn from ask. it. Yeah. So was, did you did you break it down? And you're you know obviously until you you can have a failure, but until you actually have a success in the same realm, it's hard to determine. Which all of the different variables that went into the failure or potential success, right? Yeah. But did you break it down and try to see where you could? You know, okay, I didn't. Hind- I hindsight, break down everywhere. hindsight is twenty twenty. There's <laughs> yeah. nothing like Monday morning quarterbacking your own plays. So yeah, you look back on it and 
Yeah, it, I think I think with all due respect, Simon, first time round you got more wrong than you got right, probably, <laughs> and uh, that meant second time round <laughs> it, was, it was you know failure as a great teacher and sure, all. That, so. Sure. Well, you know, the first time I went in, I was naive, and it was more of a. And the project itself was more of a ego based project. I wasn't solving anybody's problems. I wasn't producing value for the world. That was the other problem. The design itself, as pretty as it was, mm-hmm. it it wasn't a value add. Nobody in the world needed this thing. And that's the other thing you have to consider is no matter how well you orchestrate your campaign Mm -hmm. and how savvy you are at generating PR, if the core value proposition isn't there, if it's not useful or doesn't make – it isn't desirable to people – then nobody's going to care. Yeah. You know, they'll maybe you'll get a million eyes to look at it, but still nobody's going to back it. Sure, sure. Like that Y Combinator poster which says, make stuff people want. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about on the program a lot with other entrepreneurs about two things, focusing on the problem, not the dreamed up solution that you'd had originally in your mind, right? Because mm-hmm. that, the, the, you know, this, the answer to that problem, the solution to that problem could change several times throughout the course of your, your company or what you're trying to work on versus a lot of people have these great ideas, whether it's hardware or software, and they think, oh, that's a sexy ass idea. You know, I want to I want to go build that and it's going to be huge and everyone's going to pick it up and it's, you know, it's eat, scale all across the world. <laughs> But they, you know, they forget to focus, have a laser-like focus on that problem rather than th- that idea that they came up with. Right. Well, I'll go a step further um, because if you're focusing on a problem, the problem better be related to people, right? Because problems can just be technical challenges as well. Right. And you know, guys who are geeks and, and inventors and engineers and scientists, we get a thrill out of just the challenge of resolving a technical challenge mm-hmm. right can it be made right can it be done has it been done before but a lot of times still people don't ask well should we do it or does anybody care if we do it right right um so that's one of the things that you know it's it's, it's really ironic because i was i went to grad school for ethnographic design research you know qualitative con- research on people um, to understand behaviors and interactions with objects and environments in order to empathize with them, in order to understand their needs, in order to create products and environments and things that, that help them navigate and you know, live in their world. Ethnographic design research. Yeah. That yeah. was your major? Um, your- it was design research, yeah. But, I mean, it was in, it, uh, the research was based on – you know, sociology, social sciences, anthropology. Wow. So ethnography is uh, derived from uh, anthropology. Sure, sure. That's what, right. I can imagine that would be very fascinating. It was. It was brilliant. Um, it was the only time I really enjoyed school in all my life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically looking how different races, people, no, societies, no. everything well, engage see, that, that's, with design? Well, I can see what you think. Like when you hear the word ethnography, you, people immediately think of race. But it's actually – it's it's – it's not at all. It's really just about – it's about cultural behavior. So the ethnography of a, of a California biker group, the ethnography sure. okay. of an airport lounge traveler, I the see. ethnography of a grocery store shopper. Right. Right? Yeah. So in every population, depending on activity or whatever, there are groups and you can find cultures and subcultures and you can divide – and you can look at it narrowly and deeply as you want, or you try to get a broader scope. It really depends on it. Really depends on the scope of the the work. If it's pure research, or 
you know, for for what we do, it's always kind of you know, it's 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 a bit more commercial. It's commercial ethnography. Um, there's a guy that a lot of people know. Uh, his name is Paco Underhill, and uh, his group, and he's written books on it, like Why We Buy. You mm-hmm. know, he was one of the the premier guys out there in the field that. Um, that worked with a lot of the huge retailers and, and uh, other companies to um, kind of explain shopping behavior in retail environments to yeah. help the retailers redesign in order to accommodate people's behavior, to avoid the negative reactions and to sort of reinforce the positive ones. Yeah. Well, with the same kinds of tools, you can study people's relationships and uh, with their things in their lives, mm-hmm. the objects in their lives, looking at the whole picture of, you know, like, what do they do? Where do they go? How do they use the device? How do they, how do they even put, what's their first interaction with it? What do they do with it when they're not using it? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the other things uh, that are interacting with that object in that space, in that scenario? Yeah. So the idea is to build a deeper understanding and an empathy with the user because a lot of times, in this, in the case of the simple case, I was the user, right? You know, so I designed it for people like me, and luckily there's enough people like me, right? And it worked out. But you can purposefully look at a project that, or or a situation or a problem that's not related to your wheelhouse at all. Mm-hmm. Like, so we could apply the same methodologies and study nursing mothers and yeah. looking at breast pumps. Mm-hmm. For example, sure. I would have absolutely no empathy <laughs> naturally for that situation, but you can you can do the research and you can study it. So it goes way deeper than uh, surveys and you know uh, typical quantitative research. But yeah, it's yeah. way past marketing research. It's, it's one of those things that I think most people in general just take for granted for in life. Like you go into a supermarket, as you said, or a car dealership, or wherever. And you just think, oh, well, that's there because so I can see it and they want to display it and mutually beneficial for us, for them. But it's so interesting to hear from a perspective like yours, someone who's actually studied it in depth. But of course, you know, in this industry, especially in in uh, technology and stuff, people are, are more and more often using social media or, you know, your browsing history or all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to formulate a picture of what your activity is like and how best to position XYZ with you for mm-hmm. their gain, for your convenience, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it, it's something that I think everyone just so much takes for granted. It's like, well, that's the way the world is. And if I want X, I go get X. But, and some people have a problem with it, obviously, because on some levels it can seem intrusive or manipulative sure. or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I just find that really fascinating. It is fascinating. Well, a lot of the research methodologies are. The, by necessity, they're kind of intrusive. Not yeah. in, not invasive, but they are intrusive. Um, you know, the ethics of it is really in how the researchers and the owners of the information what they do with it, how they act on it. Yeah. You know, do, do they act Absolutely. on that interest? Like any, information like any tool, in the right? best interest. Story about Facebook today. No. Facebook. It's uh, on the news this morning. Facebook did a uh, did a they did A B testing where they were slightly tweaking the stories that were appearing in people's (laughs) newsfeed to make them more positive or less positive. And they were noticing that this was actually having an effect on people's moods. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are up in arms about this because it's manipulative. Well, hell, if you change the font, you can actually change people's moods too. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I we, we've actually – I think uh, you, 
a prior podcast, we went in, into depth on, on this whole issue of privacy and stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, 15 years ago, people were nervous about giving their home address and their phone number out online. And certainly no one, yeah. a lot of people had a problem, you know, using uh, e-commerce and paying right. with things with their credit yes, card. Yes. And now pretty much your entire life is online. You know, your friends, where you are, where you're eating, what you like, who you're with, all this kind of stuff is there. And I think, you know, what we were discussing was, do, are we entering that age of like ultimate transparency where you either have to accept that your entire, you know, the majority of your life and increasingly so is available for whatever prying eyes might want to see it or just completely disengage from it? I think people are willing to, uh, I think people are more understanding of the, the benefits to them. And so they don't mind all of that stuff being shared because, hey, it's cool that your friend can contact you right. with the blue or, you know, it's cool. But it, and the convenience outweighs the exactly. potential it, harm it of it, in their, yeah, in their that's opinion. that's how people see it. Yeah. And it's still early to say, isn't mm-hmm. it? And there's that whole thing about, you know, if you're not paying for this, then you are the product. Right. But I don't think anyone really feels like that yet. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say no. Uh, there, there's there's, an, there's a, a, a large enough minority that's making enough noise that you know we're cognizant of it. We're aware that there's aware a, a movement against all of this. But as you said, you know, I mean, are we going to go off the grid, live in a cave, exactly. or is there a point in fighting? I mean, it's, it's, the trend is obviously toward further transparency and openness. So, I mean, do we just accept that with any power, as you were mentioning, people can do good, people can do bad? You know, we we accept that for the convenience and entertainment of our lives, it's going to you know there's going to be a trade off, and seemingly up to this point, we all seem to be making it, especially in this community. Yeah, right. Well, there's always going to be opportunists. There's always going to be sure. parasites and people who do bad things for their own benefit. Yeah. Damn the consequences. But thankfully, for the entire you know human race, um, the the people who are out there that purposefully and knowingly do harm are actually in the very 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 small minority, minority. sure you know sure. most people are great they look you know they just want to feel useful valuable enjoy life sure. have fun with their family and friends i mean that's most people yeah so agreed but anyway. so so we let's get back to the uh, the kickstarter campaigns right so the first attempt was a failure right you, yep. you, you and you learned a lot from it yep and then uh, Ed, before before we get into the kind of you guys coming together and, and kicking off that campaign and all the details about it, what drew you? So Simon had the design pretty much mocked up. Is, is that right? Like when you guys yeah, first yeah, started talking some, about yeah, it? Yeah, he had some renders on. Or at least an idea for what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah it was, I mean, it was a further developed. I don't think you'd prototyped yet. Maybe you had. Um, but Can't you remember, had, honestly. But you had um, renders of this, this cool-looking idea and, and, you know, a SIM card containing iPhone case was something I'd never heard of because right. it didn't exist. And, and uh, I – go on. No, I was just going to ask you, prior were you involved in tech – you know, I know you had your own – you had a consulting business, I, I think you do. mentioned. I still do. I still do that. Um, yeah. But my, my – my, I studied Spanish at college, which okay. isn't massively useful if you're not in <laughs> Latin America. But I, and then I worked in London for five years uh, in what at the time was called a new media agency. Now okay. it's called Digital. Um, but back then it was new media, which mm-hmm. was like 98 through to 2002. So I was always in a kind of marketing, advertising, website-related <laughs> yeah. role because it was all wrapped up in one. Um, and then I came over here to Shanghai in 2003 and set up my other business, which is a consulting company, as I say, focused on customer experience. Mm-hmm. So we work with a lot of retail brands and hotels and restaurants. Why did you come over? Uh, I came over for every every reason in the book, actually. When I think about it, I, 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 I could list out 50 reasons I came over. But broadly, 
I wanted to leave London for a while because I wanted to go and have a bit of an adventure. Mm -hmm. If I stayed in London, I was 30, and if I stayed in London, I'd probably meet nice girls, settle down, and never leave, right? So I thought um, now was a good time because I was still single to um, go away. And ironically, I would have gone to the States, but you can't just rock up there without a visa. So, um, well, not green card anyway. So, um, and I say ironically because my wife is American now. Okay. So <laughs> I would be able to do that. But uh, yeah, Asia was the obvious choice. And mm -hmm. within that, Shanghai was the obvious choice. Okay. So uh, after eight years of, of doing this other business, um, I was uh, looking for a bit of a change. So, yeah, I sort of always had a, a, a creative bent to what I was doing, I suppose you could say. Is that fair to say? Yeah, no, Ed's, Ed's very creative. He, you know, he's a great partner to have even though he doesn't come from a design background. Uh, he has a great critical eye and he does question a lot of things. And uh, yeah, a, a couple of times he's challenged me um, and he's brought my – you know, he his challenges have, have forced me to kind of like take my design to a, the next level, to challenge myself further, to skip over the obvious solution. Right. And those challenges do very much come from the experience in London, say, of sitting with briefing a creative team and, sure. and you know, you've got in your head what the client wants. In this case, it's what I think the, the end customer mm -hmm. wants. And you challenge the creatives to say, well, that's okay, but, you know, why, why isn't it like that? And you, you, you push people a bit harder. Yeah, you know, that, that experience right. at some yeah, of the, you know, useful. bigger or that prior experience before you go into quote unquote startup, you know, is, is something that gets uh, overlooked a lot, but mm -hmm. more and more mentioned by the people that are actually successful startup entrepreneurs. And a lot of them say that their prior work experience, you know, they weren't the 20 something out of the garage. They were the 30 something after 10 years of a job that they learned a lot, but wasn't necessarily giving them that fulfillment and that creative outlet yeah. but they were able to use a lot of the things they learned there when they did uh, begin their startup and it was really an asset to them because like you said the, the, the way of looking at things the way of breaking down things analyzing things approaching the relationship with partners and things like that you just you have that experience in your back pocket and you kind of are probably better equipped to approach it right yeah i would absolutely agree um i i never would have had the guts or the nous to start up a business out of college, right. I just uh, they always, you know, there's there's this debate that goes on about whether entrepreneurs are born or made, mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't a born one though, but I'm a made one. Right. Um, but I spoke, I spoke to. I'm a member of this group called EO Entrepreneurs Organization, which mm -hmm. I get a lot out of that. And um, we had a great speaker, and he, he, I said to him, "Well, I'm not a, I'm not a born entrepreneur." And he said, "Are you sure about that? Because even though." It was five years working for other people before you started to do, you know, is, are you sure it isn't something that's sort of hardwired? And, and was it something that was always floating around in the back of your head? Do you know it was? Yeah. You know, when I think about it now, I've always, you know, had ideas and I've always wanted to, 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 to do different things slightly. Right. And, um, but I never quite knew. And, and London is a very, very developed, mature market. It's hard to start a business there, Yeah, much harder than it was to come here in 2003 and start one here, put it that way. Because it seems like a lot of people that, you know, echo what you just said about being born an entrepreneur or being forged into one. A lot of the times, they seem like they're almost one and the same. It's just that maybe the ones that get considered to be born entrepreneurs just acted on that impulse earlier. You know, like so, so many people in this industry, you know, myself included, and, every, and a lot of other people we speak to here on the show. They're, you know, if whether they've got a year or ten years of experience behind them in, in a corporate or, or wherever else, uh, you know. They were going into work every day and what they were focusing on and what they were daydreaming about and what they were, you know, 
consuming what was consuming them was not their day to day work. That was that was the, the chore. Right. Whereas the, the, the idea that they wanted to act on was just floating up there. But it's so hard if you've got a comfortable living and you you know you know well, you like your people, apartment, all these yeah. things. It's so hard to break free from that. But a lot of people have passions for their most people are more things. passionate for things outside of their work than they are for the things in their work. True. But most people treat those as hobbies, right? And not every passion is becomes something that you can actually make a living at. Absolutely, so they remain hobbies if if you're really really lucky. You get to, you know, apply your professional skills towards doing something that you enjoy that actually um, results in a living wage. <laughs> totally, I totally agree. And I think it's one of those things that it's lacking, you know, when we talk about the educational systems, mm-hmm. wherever we're coming from, is that it's not cultivating passion enough. Because I, as well, we grow – That's not what the education system Of course, it's not what it's for, for right? <laughs> it's to churn out workers to com- – Continue to sure. make things and do the hard work so that the elite one percent continue to enjoy life. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you know there's many different ways of looking at it. You can look at it from the very sinister point of view, and you can look at it from a more of kind of uh, yeah that that sort of like a emergent point of view, and that you know it just gets formed around what are, what is immediately available when you come out of that educational system within the infrastructure of the societal and economic system to, to just sl- slide right in and start making a, a living wage. But I, you know, I totally agree with you. And I think if we did cultivate passion more at a younger age, then people would, wouldn't have to be so lucky to have that passion that could be turned into something viable when they get out of school or whatever. Right. Well, what, I mean, the, 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 the irony or the, the result of that situation is now that we've seen when companies collapse and people who have given you know, the better part of their lives yeah. to a company end up with nothing, not even a pension, right? Um, that there's no economic security. Mm-hmm. And so that the sooner you can learn how to create value on your own to add value to the world and get paid for it this you know the the more safety actually economic safety that you have rather than the illusion of safety of working for somebody who's handing you a steady paycheck absolutely and i think that the similar reason for why people are beginning to consider themselves more as a brand and twitter is a very uh you know soft way of looking at it in, in that in that way but people you know, more and more people are looking at themselves and saying, you know, how can I both make myself better? How can I develop as a person, develop my skill sets, all this kind of stuff, but also promote what I know, you know, and build on that. So Twitter and Facebook, they're soft at this stage. They're considered social, but it's beginning to evolve into a thing where everybody, there's kind of a, an impulse and a necessity almost, an increasing necessity to build your own personal brand rather than just relying on, well, my name's John, but I work at Microsoft and, you know, yeah, right, give well, my paycheck. Well, it's one of the most exciting times the world has ever known. Oh, absolutely. Technology, it's obviously why you're here doing your show, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, and uh, I read an article in Wired a, f- a couple of months ago that someone, uh, uh, someone was quoted as saying, you know, I think in the future they'll look back on pre-internet and post-internet. And we are the generation that got to live through a bit of both. <laughs> no, no doubt about that. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. It's transformational. So the opportunities, I guess, I mean, we don't need to go into them. It's, yeah. it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing time for, for us to be able to take advantage of the, really the democratization of access to not only information and communication, but also funding. Yeah. Also huge. creation. Yeah. You know, you've got a 3D printer 
and a crowdfunding platform and a social media platform, you tie all those together and your dreams can become reality. Yeah. yeah. So the barriers to business, to innovating, to raising capital, to all these things are coming way down. They're, They're coming down quickly, right? Yeah. You guys, do you guys ever listen to like Peter Diamandis or uh, Ray Kurzweil or any of these guys? Ray Kurzweil. Who yes. talk about you know yeah. the future of abundance? Yeah. And they obviously take a positive view on how the world <laughs> could turn out. We all know it could go in a different direction. Yeah. But you know, they're, they're basically they're talking about the ex- exponential growth of technology and how, you know, every so often, however many years, and the the exponential growth in technology is whatever is X, and yeah. by the year twenty twenty, then twenty forty something. Twenty, yeah, it's going to be so fast. I don't know what they say, but you know, <laughs> you're going to basically have access to everything, and everything's going to be immediately connected to everything else. And yeah. I think, I think big, the, big rabbit hole for sure. But yeah. what's going? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But what you know, what we're seeing now, and we'll, we'll bring all this right back around to the Kickstarter campaign. But it's for the first time, it's kind of making you think like, well, things are you know, things are getting pretty strange, awesome, cool. Like they, I could see them getting. Whereas before, you know, in the '90s, when guys talked about this kind of stuff, you're like, yeah, you know, maybe lay off the pot a bit or, or whatever. <laughs> but now, now when you listen to them, you're like, wow, shit, you know, like things are getting that speed. way. It's yeah. just, it's the speed, the acceleration is what's catching everyone out, I think. Right. I mean, I remember the first time I saw an iPhone in my friend's hand about five or six years ago, probably maybe seven, um, and it blew me away. I yeah. was like, wow, you can do that and you can pinch and zoom. And I mean, now how commonplace is it yeah. and how commonplace is all, everything you can do with it? Yeah. So it's the speed of the acceleration that's... But amazingly, that's there's, the, there's many industries that are still... You know, I mean, when you've got a paradigm, everyone follows the paradigm. People generally, I don't know, you don't even question it. And then along comes somebody who finally disrupts it and goes, why does it always have to be this way? Why can't we do it yeah. the other way? And then and then you, you realize, oh, my God, this is so much better. Why didn't we do this sooner? Yeah. Right? It, uh, just case in point, I got a new uh, camera recently, and it has a touchscreen full touchscreen menu and stuff, you know, and my previous camera was a great camera, but you still had to button press through the menu structure and, you know, you had to remember which one to back up and which one to go forward. And, you know, I mean, this is a decade into touchscreen menus and it's like, why are cameras still, you know, well, why is it any digitally controlled device not using modern technology? Why are we still doing button presses? That's what any great technology does, right? It makes you wonder how it could ever have been Otherwise, you know, when, yeah. when you're using it, it's like how, how, how were phones ever not the way they are now? And <laughs> 10 years from now when we have God knows what, we're going to be like, oh, my God, what an archaic thing the iPhone 5 was. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, so bring, bring it all back. Mm-hmm. You guys hooked up. You, Ed, obviously saw something intriguing in, in the design that Simon had mocked up. You guys, you know, had a social relationship. You were kind of getting that itch, that, you know, entrepreneurial that's startup that's itch. Put it, yeah. So – there, that's where we are. You guys carry it from there. Well, we were, and I'll we jump were, in we with my Kickstarter question. We were successful yeah. in in the Kickstarter uh, program uh, campaign, and that was awesome. And, uh, right. So we did the we did the viral Star Wars thing, and then yeah. you launched the campaign, and you it was were shooting much harder work than we thought. I mean, it was six weeks of us staying up on Twitter to every get evening. to launch the campaign. No, no, to to, to get it over the edge. Oh, okay. It, the the first the few days were brilliant. You know, when when the TechCrunch and then the Mashable. Um, uh, when it hit those platforms, we yeah. got we got a huge amount of uh, 
you know, yeah, you've uh, got, pledgers you've got, coming you've got in. Pete Cashmore. Does yeah, it does it blow you away though? When you're doing something, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm, and and this speaks to the reach and influence of media, right? But does it when you're actually involved in something like that? And anyone who does media at all? I mean, even if it's posting a picture on Facebook and fifty of your friends like it, mm-hmm. but certainly with a, with something like this, where you're you've designed something, it's your mm-hmm. IP, you put it out there, you know, it's your work and all that. You put it out there, and you get actionable response from people you know like however many hundred thousand eyes laid eyes on your product and then how many of those eyes were spurred to action to actually donate money i mean do you just kind of sit back and like wow it's it's weird how things have you it know was, how this was, is possible it was crazy we uh we were at a cafe in uh, Tianzifang or something, yeah, right, and origin. we were just watching the messages roll in every few seconds, every minute. There's another pledge. There's another pledge. And we were like, oh, right. That's awesome. And then <laughs> I'll have another beer. Month, oh, and yeah. then you're, you're slapped with reality. A week into that, after that, Boom. you are yesterday's right, old news. Right. You are not on the front page. People can't even find you on the second or third page. And then you realize, oh, wow. Okay, then yeah. You got, then you've got to start fighting. So we just, you know, you're emailing you're tweeting you're you're just trying to trying to get in front of the right people right and we got there it was good so right. let's I, we had a lot of support from our friends as well so even though right. we succeeded yeah. though it, it was it was by a fairly narrow margin and we had to put in the work and we weren't prepared for that and you know again even with a successful campaign you learn things right and you learn that going forward that uh, for any other kickstarters that we would potentially do you know you, you want to try to create generate buzz prior to yeah. launching uh, we didn't really generate buzz until after we launched yeah and did it give you any uh like insight into the development of like we were speaking about earlier your personal brands and your personal avenues of media so that if you should do this again you could leverage those or is that kind of unrelated a, a, a bit i mean ed i think ed was uh, initially ed was even hesitant about being kind of visible personally like uh, you didn't want your yeah. photo there and stuff. You, you, you know, so when you're not used that. to being a public figure, yeah. which this – no matter what – you know, if you're doing a crowdfunding campaign, like it or not, you have to get out of your introverted self or you have to take the risk that your persona will become public fodder, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it incentivizes you to act in uh, really smart, measured ways, mm-hmm. you know. Um, we were lucky. We didn't really have – uh, any really virulent or abusive uh, backers, or we had a couple of guys that were just, you know, internet angry for some reason. Um, and well, you're going to get trolled either way yeah, if you put yourself yeah, out there. Yeah, but you know, because you know you're going to be uh, the re- your response is m- even more important than you know the attack. The, the attack, is, absolutely. Yeah. So after it. it, it and it helps you in your real life too because <laughs> once you learn how to take measured responses and not react so emotionally to challenges in the digital world, mm-hmm. it actually it actually gives you a more level head in the real world too. Yeah, I, um, can, I can, can imagine that, yeah. yeah. But um, as if – I mean I hope we're not putting anyone off from doing a crowdfunding campaign. But we've now got to the end where we've just funded successfully – and that's when the hard work really begins, right? Because that's when you have to start doing the manufacturing and the fulfillment and the shipping. And I and really, I really want to get into that. So, okay, we, 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 you, you guys launched the the campaign. You got a real good first, you know, burst of interest, and then you had to really hustle to get, you know, to yeah. get your funding of twenty thousand yep, US, right? right? Yep. Um, and that was a six week period. 
Yeah. Yeah. So you, you get that, and then I guess Kickstarter arranges the, the payment to you. Amazon, Amazon, Amazon holds the payment, mm-hmm. um, and uh, within a week or two of after the funding is successful, then they give you your funds. So it's not accessible immediately. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and then on top of that, there are fees. And Kickstarter take 5%. Right. So overall, right. between 8 and 10% of your of your collected funds are going to go to Amazon and Kickstarter. Sure, sure. And then you have to factor in also that roughly 10% will have problems processing their payment and they'll drop off. Right, right. So you you get this this money, you know, people, everyone takes their cut, but you get it, and then you have a shitload of obligations to to fill for the product, right? To your backers and and all the rest. 933 backers, 1,200-odd cases, you know, um... Right, so so let's get into all of that, you know, because I'm sure that's where the real work work comes in. Well, yeah, um, yeah it's, who wants I mean, to take Simon, it? Simon, you should talk about that. You you're the more the, of the delivery guy than me. Right. Well, I mean, before you could even launch your Kickstarter, if you're doing a hardware project, anything that requires manufacturing, anything that requires you make anything, um, even if you're just printing T-shirts to support your, uh, you know, your your play or your musical project, doesn't matter if you're because Kickstarter is a rewards-based crowdfunding platform. It mm. means there's something almost always, there's something physical that's being sent to the backers. The backers aren't donating anything. Mm-hmm. They are patrons of the arts. Right. Right? Uh, and patrons get something in return, a reward. That's what literally they call them, our rewards. Mm-hmm. So um, for anyone thinking about doing a Kickstarter, you should have – uh, before you even launch, you should already have a, a really clear idea about the costs of making and sending the stuff. Oh, yeah. I imagine um, you would have to. Well, yeah, because it all factors into your goal. How are you going to calculate your, the cost of the – like the reward level prices that you're going to – like uh, your pricing tiers? Mm-hmm. And how can you possibly know your, your funding goal if you don't have a clear picture of what it's going to cost you totally – to make all of this stuff and send it out, you know? and, and were your estimates correct? They actually, yeah. they actually were. Yeah, oh, um, well done. And we even factored in time for two trips down south to. to yeah, you have to factories. factor in. Not, not, you know, we didn't, we didn't get paid for our time for any of it. No, and and I think time. as a creator, it's in poor taste to try to profit off of something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're lucky to make any kind of profit, great. Um, but we were really looking at just what it was going to cost us to get this done. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you have to go see the factories. You can't do this on remote control. Right. Um, and you can't trust, you know, the manufacturer. You can to never understand what, what you want to do well, and because, to carry it out. Right. Because yeah. nobody, even if you've got a great manufacturing partner, mm-hmm. um, still, nobody's as invested in you. Nobody understands the idea or the product or the design as much right. as you. Uh, and probably nobody will obsess right. about the, the quality attention to of detail execution. Is not there, right. Yeah. yeah. Because they're not. So involved. was it hard to find a manufacturer for this project? Uh, product? Uh, <laughs> sure. The first one didn't work out well for us. Um, we got, we, we vetted. Several. I, I went down on a week-long trip to southern China and went between Dongguan and Shenzhen, saw about uh, eight different factories. Um, kind of finalized uh, on like half a dozen that we were really considering working with. Mm-hmm. And then one of the factories, they, they just 
they sold us on their services. They could offer more. They could do more for us. They could also work with us on – they could actually do the fulfillment for us on this, which was a huge deal for us because we were thinking how are we going to send all these out. So they were – they had export licenses. They, they were experienced in fulfilling products because they had run an eBay store before for their own products. Um, Selling the sizzle a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they, we, I toured sizzle. the factory, saw that the factory that they were introducing me to made a really good quality product for a well-known U.S. brand. And I was like, OK, yeah, if they can make that, they can make our thing for sure. And then right when we were ready to turn the key on the manufacturing, uh, I was, you know, we basically gave them the initial deposit and we're like, OK, so we're ready to go. We're going to come down and take a look. And uh, right before we went down, they were like, oh, and by the way, we changed the factory – <laughs> oh, we're not using that showpiece yeah, one not, anymore. We got another one out in the back. In, 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 in the industry, this is known as a bait and switch. Right, right. Yeah, and we got suckered in. Yeah, we did. Mm. Yeah. So the product, it, it was produced. And did that hit you? I mean, was that a big financial hit for you guys? It was actually. Well, what happened was we ended up with 3,000 units, which were okay. Right. They weren't great. So we had a higher failure rate in terms of cracks and chips and mm-hmm. little bits because it just – the quality wasn't made right. to what we were led to believe it should be and what we wanted mm-hmm. it to be. Mm-hmm. So what it meant was that after we'd shipped out our um, initial thousand or so, we were left with 2,000. The plan originally had been to sell those at full price, build up pr- build up, build up profits from that and roll it and produce more, et cetera, et cetera. But mm-hmm. actually we were left with 2,000. In our opinion, subgrade, sub substandard products that we didn't want to go take to market because right. we we're, we're all about doing it the right way. Sure. So we went back to the drawing board. We found a new factory. We reinvested um, money. We reinvested of our money. Own. We had to do mm-hmm. a new tool with a new factory. Simon, at the end, we ended up stronger because Simon took the product right back to the basics and and sort of rebuilt it so that it's it's an even better it's a better product now than it would have been had we just. Gonna right successful with right, the first right, factory, yeah. and you know we were able to add a few features that that came along, and you know happy story. We 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 then had this ready. We lost a lot of time, but we had this ready early this year. We went and now we've got some distributors getting ready to ship it out mm-hmm. globally. We're selling through an e-commerce store in um, the states. We're on Amazon in the states now, and we're going to be in Apple retail stores Ooh. in China, Hong Kong, and Japan. That's very exciting. So that's awesome. It came good in the end. You know, so you can – no regrets, right? The fact that we had to go back and rework the product harder made it more likely that we would put it in front of This is one of those great examples of fail fast. Yeah. Fail fast and improve and learn and just get out there, you know. Right. And and don't be – you know, don't – failure is not fatal, right? No, no, absolutely. So don't get back on the horse and just keep pushing. But one of the the things I wanted to ask you guys – so we – Went through the Kickstarter program. You 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 found a, a producer after all, a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You got it out there. One of the things. Well, first of all, did you guys speak with any other people in the hardware space? You know, it's becoming increasingly popular um, in in the kind of tech and startup scene, hardware and wearables and all this kind of stuff, accessories. Uh, did anyone give you advice along along your way? Like, you know, watch out with this with factories, watch out with this with, with trading and setting up your company and all this kind of stuff? Or did you, was it all just learn as you go? No, there's guys? quite a community of it. And Simon, what, another reason that I thought it would be valuable for us both to work together was he's quite well connected. And he'd always say, oh, so-and-so who did this campaign or so-and-so did that campaign. And, you know, he knows them all over. He right, knows right. A lot of them. So, yeah. Yeah, but with, with respect to the specifics of our project, 
you know, at that time, I didn't really know too many people who had done, uh, you know, and because a lot of the hardware guys that, that we bump into, um, they're not, they're not actually. Uh, I, I think they're not actually that deeply technical mm-hmm. uh, involved in the engineering. They're they're more technical from I think you know like coding and software and. Uh, some of that, but you know, they they need to find the partners and the engineering firms and the factories or the vendors who actually do things like create the circuit boards and yeah. the shells or whatever. Uh, so, with res- with respect to to resources for learning, unfortunately, yeah, of course, we had people in our network. We asked about you know retailing about shipping logistics and some questions like that i had some experience based uh, on my previous employments that helped you know like knowing what an inco term is yeah um but with respect to oh here's a manufacturer that we've used for injection molding they're a great bunch of guys and they produce a good product we didn't have anybody like that right so that was a struggle to to actually find and vet the physical manufacturing of the product yeah, it's something you. I'm hearing a lot more about these days. You know, we we mentioned before the show the Hackcelerator program mm-hmm. in yeah. Shenzhen, mm-hmm. um, which is a uh, um, hardware accelerator program. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, as we said, the space is getting a lot bigger, and more and more people are getting involved in it. And for most people, that means coming to China, especially southern China, and trying to figure out who's going to mac- manufacture it for you. And uh, uh, you know, it's not as easy as it can sometimes sound. You know, there's a lot of people think, and I've had these conversations, we're like, well, yeah, you know, got this good idea. We're getting the design done here and we're set up here. Then we're just going to pop over to China, find the manufacturer, get it done. <laughs> and you always kind of think like, yeah, you haven't been to China before, have you? <laughs> it's not going to be quite that easy. Yeah, it almost sounds like these guys are like, bing, bang, boom. Right, right, right. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, the hardware accelerator um, would be a wonderful platform and, you know, we – we definitely still hold out hope that reservations that we might, uh, you know, be involved with that one day. Mm-hmm. But right now, uh, and we mentioned this before we were on the air, um, before we were recording, that uh, right now we're focusing on low-hanging fruit, mm-hmm. stuff that we know how to execute well. Yeah. Smart, clever, dumb products. Yeah. You know, these products don't have electronics. They're not connected. They're not live. They're not thinking. They're not, you know, activating or they're not proactive products or anything. Yeah. They are just mechanical, um, geometric solutions mm-hmm. um, and kind of accessories. And, you know, we are pushing forward. And, and, you know, we can't really talk in detail now, but there are some features on some upcoming products that do use innovative materials in ways that. All of the major players, none of them have used this stuff. None mm-hmm. of them have shown these solutions to consumers before. And it's one of the benefits of being a small startup is also being very fleet of foot. You know, um, we can we can try things mm-hmm. um, and there's no real risk to us, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're, in a, if you're in a large, you know, 15-year-old tech accessories company, there's layers of bureaucracy and there's... Uh, yeah, you know. I mean, some of them are starting to... I, I had to give a presentation to GE people down in Chengdu a couple mm. of months ago. They have an initiative, an initiative called Fastworks, which is their kind of version of the lean startup. Yeah. So a lot of these businesses are starting to work out that they need to do things differently. But yeah, I agree with you. The flexibility of being small for yeah, us... Is for sure. Real. I mean, that's... that's You've got to play to your right. strengths. But the startup, you know, one of the... Appeal- 
appeals of, of startups in general is you can just you can pivot, you can adapt much more quickly than those big organizations. But you, you touched on something that I think often gets overlooked in all the hype surrounding, you know, the tech scene and the wearables market these days, and that there's still a lot of quote unquote low tech solutions to a lot of life's little not necessarily problems, but little things that could be done better, which is pretty much the genesis of the product that you guys are now right. engaged in. You know, it's, part, it's not yeah. super high tech. It's not connected with Bluetooth to your underpants and able to scratch <laughs> your balls or anything like that. But it solves a, a problem that exists now. Maybe that problem in a couple of years won't exist. Maybe SIM cards will be all standardized. And once you land in one place, it'll be automatic. Yeah. But for the moment, it's an issue, right? And it's a, it's a pain in the ass. So it, it's a very practical, very simple solution to a problem that you know yeah. is not well, not super wow. We high tech; right. it just works. The it, way it, I see it, we'll 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 continue to be successful as long as we can keep coming up with innovative problems, right. solutions. <laughs> Let's create the problems, <laughs> to, to problems that people have, and as long as we keep, you know, we're 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 always, we're always going to be as good as our ability to keep it's, coming it's, up with the right. Solution. But it's part sure. of our methodology. It's 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 in my it's in our DNA, and you know, as we grow the organization, as we grow our little company, we'll be looking for people who share the same values. Who you know thrive on the same kinds of challenges, and and who aren't looking to do things just to do things, right? Right? You know, ninety percent of the wearables market is oh, l- me too. Let's do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's track people's movement. Why? Why? What? What exact benefit are you? You, know, you know, so many, many of those of things are, are huge jumps too. Like with the whole wearables, uh, you know, health interface market, mm-hmm. tracking all your different biometrics and stuff. Who knows who's going to be the winner in that space ultimately and what solution the consumer market en masse is actually going to take up? You know, it's, yeah. it's such a big question still. What platform, yeah. what technology, what, what type of device? We're, and, and those are huge leaps that people are trying to solve. And a lot of times the larger corporations are doing it because they have the, the capital and the funding and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. But, you know, again, back to what you guys are doing, it's like you're just solving, you're solving an immediate problem that has a practical solution right now. Maybe it'll change next year and you guys will have to change as a result. Well, the approach is also much more focused. We're much more niche sure. uh, oriented. Sure. We're looking at a specific population th- uh, within a given culture that have a usability issue in mm. this manner, maybe in only this part of their lives. Mm. But it's such an irritation. It's such a pain point that every time they encounter it, it's it disrupts them. It frustrates them. You know. So if we can just take care of that small little bit of frustration, we can take that irritation out. Mm-hmm. It streamlines and smooths out their lives, and that's what we're that's what we're about. You know. That's what we want to do. Is just ease people's. Uh, you know, ease their lives just uh, in in small but significant ways. Right. Uh, there's just no reason why you should have to continue to have that splinter <laughs> that just keeps bugging you. Sure. You know, it's it's not dis- it's not disabling you. You know, you can you can go on and live your life and get all the things you want done despite the splinter being in there. But wouldn't you rather somebody take it out? Yeah, totally. So I want I meant to ask a little while ago. You you mentioned that you're going to be in Apple retail stores in China. Is that right? China, Hong Kong, and Japan. Yeah. How how did you pull that off? Um, friends of friends. Um, this yeah. is one of the advantages of being in Shanghai and not Kansas, <laughs> for one of a better place. Is you know we were. I was a drinks party friend of um, Simon's, um, and uh, one of the people there saw the case and said, you know, I, I'm 
buddies with the guys at Apple. Do you want me to put you in front of them? And I said, sure. And he did. So, you know, it's, it's all about the network. You got to love that. And especially it seems uh, we talk about a lot on this show. And in fact, it's one of the primary reasons why this show exists is I think, and now everyone might have their different, differing opinions on this, but Shanghai to me seems like it's a city that could become a really great startup and, and tech sort of hub. It's got a lot of issues, but I think it it's, got, it's, it's got yeah. it's got it's got if if nothing else at the moment it's got like the energy or something, and it's I think it could become that. And I think the community's starting to come together. I mean, you could look at it in a very a variety of different ways, but you know the number of co working spaces and accelerators yeah. and the yeah. number of uh, startups that are emerging here. Yeah, and uh, I think I feel like the the tech and startup community more so than most, but I could be wrong, is more willing to help each other out as you were just mentioning like yeah you know i'm i got this startup i'm, I'm doing this product as you guys are doing you mentioned it to your mate who works at mm-hmm. apple and you know they're like oh yeah it's cool you know maybe we'll help you out now mm. perhaps i'm wrong and they're just like yeah we could sell a bunch of those make some money but it, do you guys get that feeling in this community that it's you know I, more I more help more reciprocal yeah. than than I, others i've been in shanghai 11 years and i think foreigners here have always been willing to help out for right other right foreigners. And and I'm not just talking about the foreigners either, but I think people um, here trying to do interesting new stuff are always will. They're aware of the benefits of helping out other people and, you know, paying it forward and all the rest of it. So I agree with you. I haven't worked recently in London or San Francisco or any other places Mm -hmm. where there's a big startup scene. I'd be interested to know. But I I would think that, you know, if you're in Berlin or Sweden, there's there's communities there that are all willing to help each other out as well. I don't know if there's there's more of that here. No, I don't mean – I mean within startup communities you see more of that, whether they're here, Berlin versus other industries. It's like if you're in, court, you know, whatever industry you're in, yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, and I think what one of the benefits that Shanghai has is it's so international, mm-hmm. so international. We've, we've all got friends from all over the world yeah. and uh, colleagues and co-workers from all over the world. And that's a really – that's a real strength for it, I think. Mm-hmm. And for me, Shanghai is just a very modern place. I mean, in, in some ways, it's quite old-fashioned, as we know, mm-hmm. but in many ways, it's a very modern place in the same way that Japan – Maybe not so much, but in the 80s, 90s, Japan was a very modern place. Sure. Not a Western place. Yeah. It wasn't Western. No, but not it's at very all. Modern. Yeah. And I think Shanghai is very modern like that. There's lots of stuff that here that's cutting edge, more than people say in the States or Europe might realize. And I feel like for a variety of reasons, it's got that gusto right now. You know, people are Definitely. after it. It doesn't matter what field you're in, mm-hmm. art, business, startups, whatever. People just realize there's opportunity there and that yep. everyone's like really going after it yeah there's yeah. there's a momentum there's an inertia <clears throat> to the city mm-hmm. and to the people in it um and there's a lot of there's a lot of as ed said paying it forward karma because you never know you help out this person they'll connect you with somebody who can help you out yeah. there's fewer than six degrees of separation between you know the person that you're speaking with and the person who could make or break a huge opportunity for you yeah you know in that well, way it's a smallish sort of community right well shanghai is an incredibly yeah. small big city yeah you know, it's it got that, that feel. And when you're sure. doing things that are positive and you're trying to move uh, your thing forward, you keep bumping into the, the, same, uh, the people. same people who are <laughs> doing the same kinds of things, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful place to be from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes down to it, though, again, with, with anything in life, if, there's, if, there's, if the substance isn't there, it doesn't matter what doors get open for you. 
you know, sure. it's, it, it's nice to have the opportunity to have the meeting. But mm. if you're if you don't have your stuff together and you're not ready to impress somebody with your ideas or your product or whatever, totally, then forget it. Yeah, you can't rely on the environment. You still got to bring it, but it's Absolutely. just you know, it's a unique, but, unique yeah, place but to be. Being able to, and, and you know, from from their standpoint, and you know, we're kind of talking about Apple again. Is that from their standpoint, it's a really interesting opportunity to to be able to speak directly with uh, the decision makers and the creators in the company that can develop products for their specific market, mm-hmm. for their con- specific consumer culture and market. Yeah. Because a lot of what uh, you know, the retail, uh, the products that they retail are kind of just sent to them from headquarters or sent to them from the, from the West, yeah. right? With m- little or possibly no consideration of the, the different – um, user scenarios or needs of the cultures in these markets that they're serving. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful opportunity for us and them. Um, they, you know, we get to we get to partner with uh, a really incredible company, uh, and you know, contrary to what anybody might be thinking, these these folks are wonderful to work with. Yeah, they're really straightforward. They are absolutely not in the position of bullying you or making you feel small. Right. Um, they're straight shooters, and it, we love working with people like that. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. So that being said, you know, how are things at the company? These it's full time for both of you guys, right? I mean, I know you have an, yeah, another. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it's pretty much it's mostly full time for me. It's it's um, at least three to four days a week. Right. So is it starting to, or ha- has it already started? To gain traction, are you guys are sales coming in at a fairly regular basis? We're, we're getting close to that tipping point. Okay, we've been making regular sales. They haven't been huge yet, um, but there's so many events that are converging uh, that the latter half of this year, I think, will feel a lot different than the yeah. first half right. of this year. And what are you guys doing ongoing, like on a daily basis, to continue to get the word out, to you know, get this in front of people? Get people to buy the product. You At know. the moment, we're, we're we're just about to. In the coming few weeks, we're going to launch a new brand under which all of our products are going to be uh, sold. Well, all of our some of our products, certainly all of our products for the next year or two, will be sold under this new brand, Caramel with a Q. Um, we were even able to buy caramel.com, which was quite a bonus. Um, and, uh, <laughs> for cheap, I'm assuming. Uh, for, the, for the $25 or oh, the $10, nice. whatever. We, yeah, we didn't even have to go to one of those. Brucey bonus? Spots. Yeah, yeah great. Just, it was there. Great. And, um, and it wasn't the domain name was available, so that's what the, the, the name was? Well, or? actually, no, no. We wanted to do caramel with a C, but it was basically trademarked. Sure. Up the wazoo. Up the wazoo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> word, but yeah, wazoo works. Um, so uh, we, we scratched that and right. did caramel with a Q. That there's almost uh, – we found no other single well, – Car- we Caramel doing, with a Q is when way we were cooler doing our, When we were doing our <laughs> trademark search – Caramel spelled with a Q instead of a C had not been trademarked by any industry in the States for any service in the States and the UK. We searched both. That's yeah. a bit surprising actually. It's really it? crazy. Yeah. With a K, absolutely. We had to double check several times to make sure the system wasn't broken. Yeah. We're like, this can't be right. Cool. But uh, it just turns out – and you know what? We, we love it. <clears throat> our, 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 I, we're really happy with our new brand identity. Yeah. Um, our positioning is going to be much more humanistic and warmer and approachable uh, as opposed to the cool, masculine, kind of edgy tech accessories that everybody's used to seeing. So throwing back to your original Kickstarter campaign a little bit, some of the elements from that? I mean, uh, not as a yeah, campaign, but as right. an, as a ethos or, or Yeah, a bit vibe. more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think having – you know, going down to asking ourselves, you know, when you're creating a product or a project, you don't really think that deeply about it. You're, the, the, 
the stuff is very immediate. But when you're trying to build a brand, you really need to ask yourself, what is our brand going to stand for? Yeah. You know, what's our soul? What's our values? Sure. And then when you really think about it and you and you align the brand to your core values and your aspirational goals, then I think it helps us because it's going to drive us to develop um, products um, that are going to be hopefully far better you know that that'll be far more inclusive and and serve people better than we would have if we just approached everything from a an individual product, product sure, by product sure. basis yeah. because there's an overriding kind of a philosophy now yeah which is a fast i mean it's that in itself is a huge task for a lot of young companies but any company really to align that brand image and what they're communicating with their brand with the line of products or product that they're actually putting out there and who they're trying to put it out there for and the type of problem they're solving. And as we all know, you know, oftentimes large expensive agencies are employed to figure that out and to do that. And I presume you guys have to do that. We, we oh, we're bootstrapped. Yeah, exactly. So you guys yeah. – yeah. Because yeah. nobody else is invested as well. Right. The, I mean that's real – corporate culture core dna stuff yeah, you know, yeah who are we and what are we doing here and why are we doing it yeah and how do you represent that we, sure we had to do that ourselves. right if you yeah. let somebody else dictate that to you because <clears throat> for you know yeah you could pay somebody a lot of money and they could come up to you with a brand book and say this is what you guys stand for right uh but how did they come to that conclusion yeah well if, if i can answer that if, they, if, they, <laughs> if they're good at the job and they're doing it right they will actually be able to pull that out mm-hmm. yeah and yeah that's, that's and there's no dictating going on but but you know we, we but i think to, to, to your guys point if if people like yourselves can can do it successfully and genuinely and have it really resonate with the product and the the consumer or the market that you're trying to hit, then I think the value of it is that much more because yeah. it just comes across as being sincere and right. not manufactured. Well, you know? I'll, I'll, I'll go further and say just from a, from a pragmatic standpoint, if you're a startup, you need to be bootstrapped for as long sure. as possible. Sure. Don't rent an office until you need an office. Right. Don't take on investment that you don't absolutely need. Right. If, you know, yes, we could have outsourced the graphic design um, no, it's not the most comfortable thing for me to do. But you know what? Um, by having to push ourselves, Ed included also lots of skills, lots of things he had to learn to take on logistics and transport and you know international tax law and stuff, all this crazy stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's not the most comfortable thing to try to learn yourself mm-hmm. and it may not be the most uh, – uh, you may not ever – you know, by yourselves, come up with the absolute best possible end result, but it's kind of an eighty twenty rule, right? Sure, you can get yourselves there. Yeah, with with just a little bit of effort and you know some research and some diligence, you can get yourselves to the eighty percent mark. And when you are really, you know, when you're cash flow positive and you've got when you've got certain revenue coming in, then you can start setting aside cash, and then you can slowly get yourself, you know. Get yourself that last twenty yeah. percent, which is going to actually Cost require the other eighty percent right. resources. Yeah. So, yeah, um, and positions you, you know, when you do get to that point, just to know more intimately all the different elements of what yeah. it is you're doing and trying exactly. to do, right? Because Simon's pushed hard to get me to outsource quite a lot of these sort of um, more menial tasks out to, to you know, via Fiverr.com or any of these sort of virtual or, or, right, or right. online personal assistants or yeah. whatever. But I'm a great believer in doing it yourself because you can't oversee someone 
doing something if you've never done it yourself. You, in my view, you can't effectively agree, yeah. brief them and yeah. make sure that they're doing it as well as possible. Mm-hmm. You want to hire in an expert and work for you, and then you oversee them and you give them the remit to do it even better than you ever could have. Yeah, you got to be able to instruct if you've them. You've never and done it yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're going to look like an idiot one day because you're going to say something that proves you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Sure, I agree. So, uh, guys, we're coming up on the end of the show. Just to bring it all around, just for you know, if people missed that last one. So we're rebrand. You guys are rebranding the the company towards the end of this year. Well, uh, we're creating, right now we're, we're creating a. Well, just smi- yeah. a slight correction. We're not rebranding the company. Logical Designs exists, and we will continue to. That will be the parent company. That's the registered company. Yeah. Caramel is the brand that we're introducing, under which the collection of accessories for mobile uh, computing and you know. I see. Okay. Those products. Uh, will f- all start falling under caramel. Logical designs exist because at some point we have so many ideas, we have so many things we want to tackle. The other in the product future. lines and brands, yeah, and that, stuff. that yeah, may yeah, not yeah. fit under the caramel brand. Yeah, that will sure. be, may launch a new brand for yeah. in another industry. Cool. All right. So everyone that comes on the show, and I wish we had more time to get in all into the nitty gritty of the Shanghai scene and all that kind of stuff. But we got to get out of here. So everyone that uh, comes on the show, I ask them, what's a piece of advice they could give to, you know, a, a, a aspiring entrepreneur, whether they're in China or maybe they're in the West, and they're thinking, "Wow, China is an interesting place." Or I have this idea, particularly in the hardware space, and I know I have to be familiar with China and what's going on there. I want to get a piece of advice from from each of you. What, what, piece what, of advice you, specifically for China, or or just for being an entrepreneur generally? Let's do that. Let's do an entrepreneur generally, and then let's do China. Go for it. Seems how you asked. Wow, um, I should have lots to say on Don't that. Don't do it. You know what? Know what I would do? I, I wish when I was 15, and this book probably hadn't been written by then, uh, Richard Branson, or Sir Richard Branson, as mm-hmm. he should more formally be known, I presume, wrote a book called, his first book called Losing My Virginity, which basically talks about how he started off with nothing yeah. and grew to be Richard Branson. Yeah. And um, I would urge anyone to read that book whether they're early on or later on it's a fascinating book and it really is very very inspiring to see how you can create so much from from so little but just through the will to do it and the self-belief and the passion and the willingness to get it all wrong and then start again and do it right yeah i i think in terms of uh yeah advice i mean there's a million slightly trite Mm -hmm. things you could say sure but um and, you know, if you had longer, I'd certainly <laughs> But, um, uh, yeah, that for me, read that book. Losing My Virginity is a great book. All right. And China? Simon, your turn while I can do that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my general piece of advice comes a little bit from, you know, my, my perspective as a, as a designer uh, and an engineer. Um, the, most, the most valuable thing I can, I, can, I can offer is that if you're in the business of creating something for other people um empathy is the is the is should be the most important thing on your priority list mm-hmm. because if you're not empathetic if you don't understand uh what your product or service means to the people whose lives you're intending to affect and who you're asking to give you money for this valuable service or product then you're not doing them or yourselves, uh, you know, the right kind of service. You're going to miss the target. Right. Empathy is how you zone in on the target. Yeah. And in general about China, again, from my perspective, you have to be here. 
Mm-hmm. You have to come here and invest a significant amount of time. Don't just come here on a week and visit factories and think, you know, no, 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 no. Um, you need to build relationships with the vendors that you think uh, are really going to be your partners. And um, uh, you have to be here long enough to sort of understand the culture enough to be able to even vet, to be able to understand who's selling you uh, empty promises and who you can who you can really trust. Right. Um, and I'll, I'll offer one more thing. Make sure that your vendor owns the <laughs> manufacturing process. <laughs> If they outsource any of it, insist on seeing the right. outsource, insist on building a relationship and getting the business card of the managers at the outsource at their supplier, at their sub-supplier. So be, be meticulous if you're dealing yeah, with Chinese yeah, manufacturers. Yeah, know your – absolutely have complete transparency and knowledge about your supply chain. Right. Know where everything's coming from and who to talk to, not if but when things go wrong. Right. Good advice. I would, I would echo – in terms of China, I would echo Simon in that you, you have to be here. Uh, you can't just dip in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be here and you have to be committed for the long term as yeah. well. It's not a two-year, oh, great, we'll, we'll, we'll all do great in two years. You need to be committed for the long term. And mm-hmm. When I get to talk to people who want to ask advice, I'll always try and give them that. Is yeah. Make sure – you know, if you're not here for, for, for the long term, whatever that means – um, it's going to be too easy to just well, people pop gonna, off. And, yeah, and I don't think people are willing to invest in you in the same way either. Sure. And the main thing is don't for a moment think it's ever going to be easy. Right. <laughs> that's, what, that's my feedback on China. <laughs> you know, people come and they think, yeah, I was probably guilty of this. They think the streets are paved with gold. Right. But boy, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great advice. And often echoed by many people on this show and, and sure. other conversations. Just it's, it's not a, a super easy landscape. But you know it's it's engaging. It's it's interesting. It's certainly you know we all often talk about it on the show. How what's going on in China right now? Totally is mm. is I feel like it's a fairly unique environment and atmosphere. I don't think it's going to be this way. No, it's certainly, look, it won't be this way when forever. When we look back, know? when we look back, we will feel we will feel that we've been privileged right. to be here, part of something during special. this time. Yeah, in, in you know in the history of China, uh, in the history of the world. Totally. Well, let's end it on that on that thought. So, guys, where can people get a hold of you guys if you're going to do any more Kickstarter campaigns or launching the new brand or, you know, Twitter, email? Where should people uh, get in touch or look look up you guys if they want to get into more detail about the product? Because I think it's a little bit difficult to fully describe, you know, how the product looks and its functionality. So, if people want to pop on and, and have a look, where should they sure. go? There's there's more info about the product on simplecase.com, and that's simple without an e in the middle. S i m p l c a s e, and there's emails on there. We can be we can be reached at info at or Ed or Simon at yeah. Logical Designs Logical L G C L Designs dot com all one word. And you guys are on Twitter and Facebook yep. and all at that logical, stuff too, right? At, at logical, logical Designs, designs. and we have a Facebook page, Logical Designs, which we're soon going to change to Caramel. Nice. But Caramel is going to be our our main point of entry. Good, good. So everyone can follow you guys and keep abreast of any new campaigns or anything like that yeah. when they when they come up and all the great stuff you guys are going to be doing, we right? reply yeah. to every message we receive. <laughs> we always do. Yeah. Cool. And we are Tech in Shanghai, of course. You can get us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai. Our website is coming along very slowly, not because it's going to be great, but because I'm just very lazy. So <laughs> that'll be up uh, very shortly. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.